Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Chad Orzel. He's an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Union College in Schenectady, New York, where he teaches a wide range of classes and does research on atomic, molecular, and optical physics. And today we're going to focus on his latest book, A Brief History of Timekeeping, the, there it is, <laughs> The Science of Marking Time from Stone Age to Atomic Clocks. So, Dr. Orzel, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is, these things are fun. Yeah, sure. So, uh, first of all, is timekeeping a human universal? Do we know if all studied or known human societies have some sort of timekeeping? Uh, absolutely. Like every culture that we have decent records of uh, has some sort of timekeeping element built into it. And there's even arguments that uh, that the drive to keep track of time goes back, you know, tens of thousands of years. There's, uh, you, you can find people holding up as an example of the first calendar. There's like a bone fragment from like 40,000 years ago that has these sort of crescent shapes etched into it that uh, people point to and say, well, those are moon shapes. And this is a mnemonic device for, you know, tracking the phase of the moon through the course of a month. So, you know, people have always been been keeping track of time. Um, the oldest things that are that are really unambiguously clocks are things that are are solstice markers that are, you know, 5,000 years old, give or take. These sort of monumental structures that people built to mark the position of the rising and setting sun on particular dates. So uh, we'll probably not get into all the different types of clocks you explore in the book. I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. sure if we will have time to do to cover all of them, but generally speaking i mean do you, is it that all clocks i mean all pieces of technology we used and use to keep track of time have uh, traits in common yeah i would say that the thing that defines a clock really broadly speaking is is a clock is something that ticks and i don't mean necessarily an audible tick like a like a right. mechanical pendulum clock but just some regular repeated motion that you count to mark the passage of time. So, you know, an actual ticking mechanical clock, what you're counting is a pendulum that swings back and forth or a, a mass on a spring that's oscillating. Uh, and you count the oscillations and you say, well, so many of these is this amount of time. You can do the same process on a much slower scale with something like the motion of the sun. Uh, you know, we're recording this in December, so the days in the Northern Hemisphere are extremely short, right? And then they'll get longer and longer through the year and then come back. And um, accompanying that, the sun moves across the horizon, uh, returning to the same rising and setting position um, after one year. And you can use that as a tick. You can mark the passage of years by, you know, when is the sun come to these particular positions? And then you can also go in the other direction and look at things that tick incredibly fast, like the oscillations of microwaves emitted by cesium atoms, which is the basis for the modern definition of the second, which is uh, 9,192,631,770 oscillations of a particular uh, frequency of microwaves emitted when cesium atoms flip from one electronic state to another. 
Mm -hmm. In what ways, for example, have people been using the movements, movements, quote unquote, of course, of the sun to keep track of time? So the, the two big ones are, are you can measure the, the passage of time through the course of a day using a sundial. So you basically just take a stick and hammer it into the ground. And if you look at the shadow, you'll see, you know, as the sun appears to move from east to west across the sky, the shadow will track from west to east uh, across the face of the, of the sundial. And that leads to um, a way to keep track of the time. You can say, well, when the shadow is pointing here, it is this time of day. And when it comes back around, we'll say that's been one full day. Um, the other one is that motion of the sun across uh, along the horizon, right? Right now in the Northern hemisphere, uh, the sun is very close to the southernmost point at which it rises uh, and the southernmost point at which it sets. And in June, it'll be close to the northernmost point at which it rises and the northernmost point at which it sets. And you can use that motion to, to mark out the, the passage of a year. Um, so those are the, the two major motions of the sun, and both of them have been used for timekeeping purposes. Right. And how do people use the sun to orient themselves in space? And does that have anything to do with time as well? Yeah, there's a very deep connection between sort of where you are and what time it is, right? So that, that takes a couple of, of, of forms. Um, one is, you know, the exact trajectory that the sun follows across the sky depends on, on your latitude, right? So if you are, you know, as we are in the, the mid, you know, 40-something degree uh, latitudes, um, in the Northern hemisphere, right? The sun is always to the south of the, the zenith of the, the maximum point in the sky. Um, if you go much farther north than we are, you get to a point where there, there are some days, there's periods of weeks or months even, when the sun is always in the sky, right? And, and there's periods where it's never in the sky, where it's below the horizon for, for you know, 24 hours or, or you know, whole days and, and weeks. And if you go farther south, you go into the tropical zone, there will be days when the sun is directly overhead. So uh, that also comes into play as to, you know, relating where you are to what time it appears to be. If you're looking at something like the shadow of the sun, then there's also the, the issue of longitude, uh, which is uh, people at different points on the surface of the rotating Earth will see the sun at different positions because, of course, the sun isn't actually moving. We're moving. Right. And as the planet rotates, someone who is uh, further to the east will see the sun being further along in its daily apparent motion than someone who's further to the west. And so if you're marking time by the angle of the shadow of the sun, um, you would say it's different times in those two places. So there's this very deep connection between what time it is and where you are. Mm -hmm. What about the stars, the other stars and the moon? Of course, we know that people throughout history have commonly used them, particularly at night, to orient themselves in space. But what about time? Yeah, absolutely. You can also use the, the stars as a basis for, for timekeeping. Um, you know, they appear to be more or less fixed, but uh, rotating uh, more slowly than the sun, because as the Earth goes around the sun, of course, the angle that you have to look at to, to see any particular star changes. Um, and those change over the course of a night. So you can look at um, exactly where a particular constellation is and use that as a, a marker to track time. And they also change with the seasons. Particular stars 
uh, are visible, you know, just after sunset or just before sunrise at, um, you know, different times of year. Um, this is the basis for one of the oldest uh, calendars that we have really good information about, which is the Egyptian civil calendar, uh, was keyed to the the rising of the sun of the star Sirius, which is the the brightest star in the uh, in the night sky, and um, it rises just before it rises in August, um, just before the time when the Nile floods, which is the most important event in the agricultural year in Egypt. So that's what they took as their new year marker. When this, uh, when this extremely bright star appears just before sunrise, then you know, okay, we're right at the time when any day now the Nile is going to flood and then our year starts and we go from there. So you can use that as a, as a marker as well. Mm -hmm. So, of course, astrology is not really something scientific, but it's still interesting to know where the cycle of the zodiac and the attributed zodiac signs come from. So, where does it come from exactly? So, the idea, basically, uh, every culture, with a, with a couple of exceptions that we, that we know much about, has sort of these this sort of 12 or 13 showing up in its, in its calendar system. Uh, and that has to do with the, the phases of the moon, right? So the moon takes a little under 30 days to go from one full moon to the next full moon, right? Or one new moon to the next new moon. And so there's about 12 of those in a tropical year. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the cycle of the phases of the moon is a very convenient timescale for humans. It changes over a couple of days visibly. So you can tell where you are in that very easily. So people naturally gravitate to using that to keep track of, of what day it is. Uh, and then there's 12 or 13 of those in a year. And so you sort of end up, everybody kind of ends up dividing the sky into 12 or 13 or, you know, 24 uh, parts and sort of right. identifying patterns in the in the sky in that number. So the traditional, the, the zodiac that we're familiar with comes from, from the Greeks and Romans. Uh, that's a, a 12 pattern division across the, the band where the sun and the moon uh, and the planets appear. Uh, the Chinese system used to do, they used to do 24 uh, solar terms that they, they mm -hmm. subdivided it a little more. But it's the same idea. It's about, you know, one for the waxing moon, one for the waning moon. Mm -hmm. And why is it that, for example, in our current calendar, the number of days per month vary? And why also the number of days in February varies every four years? So the the tricky thing about calendars and, and the thing that makes the science of this really interesting and powerful is that uh, none of these cycles are integer multiples of one another. So uh, the number of days in a year is not a perfect integer. It's uh, 365 and a little less than a quarter uh, day per year. Uh, and the uh, number of days in a between full moons is not an integer. So if you're going to try and reconcile these things, you have to, to play some, some complicated games to, to get it to work out. Um, one thing that people have done historically is, to, is called intercalation, where you have a, a year that has 12 months in it that are synced up with the full moon. But every two or three years, you add a 13th month. 
and uh, that keeps you in sync with the moon, but also keeps the, the months kind of in the right seasons of the year. The other thing you can do is you can define the number of days in a year and split that up into months of fixed length and then just kind of forget about the phase of the moon. And that's the approach that the Egyptians took uh, when they launched their calendar. They had uh, 12 months fixed at 30 days each. And that's also the approach that the Romans took. Uh, they had months that alternated either 29 or uh, either 30 or 31 days. And that comes out not quite the right number of days. Uh, you can get 365 days out of that, which is a little too short. So that causes the months to slip relative to the seasons by about a day every four years, which you can fix by adding a day to one of the months um, every four, you know, every four years. And that's the origin of the, the leap year system. This is implemented under the Caesars in, um, so it's called the, the Julian calendar reform because it was first really put in place by Julius Caesar in the early BCE. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, looking at all the different calendars we've had across history, can we really say that one of them is better than the others at keeping track of time or is that not really... Um, what I would say is all of the calendars are good at doing a particular thing. And okay. what they're doing is uh, something that reflects societal priorities. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there's there's kind of three calendar systems in widespread use nowadays. Uh, there's the Muslim calendar, which is strictly lunar. I mean, if you're sufficiently devout, it, it requires somebody to cite the new crescent moon before you start the next month. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that that gets you a 12 month year that is short by about 10 or 11 days from the, the tropical year. So the the major holidays of Islam move through the year. Right. The Ramadan right. falls in the summer sometimes and then it's in the spring, that's in the winter. Mm -hmm. Right. It moves around the calendar. Um, the other extreme is the the um, Gregorian calendar that, that we use in the, in the West which uh, fixes the length of the year, but then has these months with fixed lengths that sort of alternate, but not quite. Uh, and you add a day every now and then to make sure that, you know, the, the solstices are always on June 20th or 21st and December 20th or 21st, and the equinoxes are in March and September, and uh, that keeps those fixed. But then you have no idea, you know, if you know what month it is, you don't know what the phase of the moon is. If you want to do both of those things, if you think it's important to both have a calendar that keeps pace with the seasons and to know about the phase of the moon, then you have to do something like the Jewish calendar, which has um, 12 months that are strictly lunar, uh, but every few years adds a 13th month. And so they uh, that does the right thing, you know, in uh, terms of both knowing if you know what month it is and what day of the month it is, you know approximately what the phase of the moon is. And uh, and also, you know what season that month will be in, right? Mm -hmm. that, that there are months that are winter months and they're always winter months. There are months that are summer months. They're always summer months. But they might slide back and forth by, you know, 10 or 20 days. So, you know, sometimes, you know, we're coming up on Hanukkah, you know, sometimes that's, after Christmas, sometimes that's before Christmas. Uh, you know, it, it moves around depending on where you are in the cycle of adding these extra months. 
So depending on what you think is most important, right? So for religious reasons, uh, the the Muslim calendar prioritizes the moon over everything else, mm -hmm. uh, and they throw away a bunch of other information. That calendar works brilliantly for doing that, but isn't useful if you want to know what time, you know, what day you should plant crops. If you just want to know when you should plant crops and don't care about the phase of the moon, the Gregorian calendar is brilliant. And if you want to know both of those things, you want something like the Jewish calendar, but it's very complicated then. So could we say that, that it has a lot to do with the goals people have in particular societies and perhaps also the practicalities of everyday life and what people choose to pay most attention to? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's really fascinating about this is um, we only have a couple of examples of calendars that come from way outside the Western tradition. Um, because you know, the, the Chinese in India, they had very sophisticated calendar systems that are also pretty similar, similar idea, a months of, of fixed lengths. Occasionally you add one, they're kind of synced up with the moon, that sort of thing. Um, if you look at something like the, the Mayan calendar in Central America, that, that, you know, it's an empire that rose and fell before, uh, any contact with European civilizations, right. they had this calendar that had a very different cycle to it. That had a, uh, it's a 270 day cycle that uh, is a 260 day cycle that is uh, made by these sort of two sets of, of things. There's a name and a number that, that rotate, uh -huh. that, that increment forward as, as each day goes on. And we don't know what that was, but it was incredibly important to them because they, they gave all their dates in terms of, you know, these two symbols uh, for, you know, uh, there, there are 13 uh, numbers and 20 names, you know, and, and we don't know why. Uh, we, we, we're not sure what it is that they, were, that they were measuring with that 260 day cycle, but it's clearly very important to them. So different societies make different choices about what is the most important thing to base your calendar on. Right. And what have been the roles played by things like politics and religion in the development and adoption of particular calendars? Yeah, there's there's a lot of politics that, that goes into this stuff. So the Julian calendar reform that I, I mentioned earlier um, was done to, because the, the Roman calendar at the time uh, was one of these intercalary calendars. Every few months, every few years, you would you were supposed to add a month. But that month was added on the authority of a uh, uh, priest that was also a political office. Mm -hmm. And so they started to play politics with this. Sometimes they would not add the month when they were supposed to because they wanted somebody of the other party to come out of office sooner. Mm -hmm. Or they would add an extra, you know, they would add a month in a year when they really shouldn't have just yeah. to prolong the term of one of their allies. And things got really, really wacky. And, and the Caesars, you know, had to sort of get it back in sync with the seasons and set up this more uh, rigorous system. Um, you know, you also see this with, with religion. The, uh, the Gregorian calendar that we now use is um, derived from the, the Julian, but is a, is a small tweak to the leap year rule. Um, century years are generally not leap years unless it's divisible uh, by four. Mm -hmm. um, And that uh, happened because uh, the date of Easter was shifting. Uh, the, if you have the leap year rule that's strictly one day every four years, 
you have a little bit too much. And then Easter was slipping relative to the, the seasons. And this was considered theologically incredibly important in the, you know, medieval Europe and, you know, sort of 1300s, 1400s, it had added up to, to a number of days that it was out of sync with the, the season. And people thought that was that was really important to address. And so they put together this commission of astronomers and mathematicians and came up with a way to change the calendar that fixes the, the length of the year a little better than the Julian leap year rule. And they did that essentially for religious reasons. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to keeping track of time, what would you say are some of the main differences between calendars and clocks? I would say that, you know, the difference between a calendar and a clock is basically just uh, a difference of time scale, right? A, a calendar is, I would say, in, in very broad definition, is just a clock that ticks extremely slowly, right? The ticking of your calendar is a day. Right. It's a it's a clock that ticks once per day as you flip over to the next sheet of the, you know, the day by day uh, calendar page, uh, whereas a clock is something that ticks faster, you know, on a scale that is useful for measuring time you know, for subdividing your day. Right. So. Uh, and what are really the social functions of clocks? Because, of course, we're, as we talk, for example, when it comes to calendars, there's political, religious, and social elements to them. What about clocks? So I would say, you know, with, with calendars, the, the obvious purpose is knowing when to plant things, right? So if you have an agrarian society, you know, you need to know, okay, it, it is spring now, or it is going to be spring in a, in a month. We got to get ready. We got to, you know, get food in the ground so that we have food to eat, you know, later in the year. Uh, so that's the the obvious practical purpose of that. Uh, clocks, you know, the subdividing of, of days is something that becomes important once you start to get units of people that are, you know, bigger than, you know, a couple of families in a village, mm -hmm. right? If you start to have cities, then you kind of need to coordinate the activities of large numbers of people who aren't necessarily starting out in the same place. And you need a way to say, you know, like, hey, you and I should meet, you know, we need to do this thing together. Uh, we live in different locations. We should meet at some particular place. And, you know, you want to be reasonably specific about when should you meet, right? And so you need some kind of clock, some kind of, of you know, clock type system to be able to say, all right, the time at which we are going to meet is, you know, when the shadow of this stick is in this position, then we're going to be at that place. And that, you know, once you start trying to coordinate larger scale activities, you need that something that, does, that serves that function. And what were the first clocks? What were the first devices that people use as clocks? The, the oldest kind of clocks are, are undoubtedly sundials, right? So, you know, you just have a vertical stick, you look at the position of the shadow. Those work great if you're in a place where it's sunny all the time. Uh, they, they don't work so well if you're in a climate like, like I am, where it's frequently uh, kind of gray and dreary. Uh, and they, they also don't work at all at night. So the, the oldest kind of clock that can run under not sunny conditions is a water clock, which is just, you know, you get some kind of container, you fill it with water, you know, you put a hole in the bottom so the water leaks out slowly. 
And then you just, you know, every time it gets empty, you fill it up again and let it empty out again. And, you know, you can count the, the passage of time that way. Or you can take uh, a container like that and put markings on it so that, you know, you say, okay, when the water level gets to here, then one hour has passed. Then when it gets to here, two hours have passed and so on. And you can mark the passage of time that way with a water clock. And those date back uh, thousands and thousands of years. Um, there's a tomb inscription from Egypt around 1500 BCE uh, by a guy bragging that he had invented a better water clock that compensated for the fact that the length of the day changes as you go through the year. And all it is, is it's a, it's one of these, you know, it's an alabaster vessel that, that has lines marked on the inside. And there's just a set of lines for each month of the Egyptian calendar that are spaced slightly differently to account for, to compensate for the, the change in the length of the night. Um, but this was, you know, a, a amazing technical innovation in 1500 BCE uh, enough so that this guy brags about it in, in his in his tomb. So. Right. Uh, and what about uh, Hauer glasses? When did those appear? And what would you say, perhaps, uh, because I haven't asked you about that yet, some of their limitations? So uh, one of the most surprising things I, I learned when I started looking into this history very seriously was uh, hourglasses are surprisingly late. Um, the first unambiguous depiction of an hourglass is in uh, early 1300s. There's a, a fresco in a uh, the city hall in Siena, Italy, that uh, shows a, you know, is an allegorical figure holding an hourglass. And it is a fully developed, recognizable modern hourglass. Um, and that's the the first time that, that, that we see something that's unambiguously an hourglass. There's People have stories about them being invented earlier, uh, but there's not no solid references uh, prior to that. Uh, that's about the same time that you get mechanical clocks. Mm -hmm. uh, so those two things are roughly contemporaneous. Um, the big advantage of an hourglass is, you know, it doesn't freeze, right? Sand, um, you know, continues to be sand even when the temperature is very low. So, you know, if you're in Northern Europe, uh, water clocks are a little dicey because they can freeze over in the winter, you know, and that's sort of a problem. But, you know, a sand glass uh, continues working. The problem is uh, sand, you know, if it gets if it's humid, it gets kind of clumpy and it doesn't flow smoothly and the, makes the a sand glass a little erratic. And so they take a long time to develop basically because of material science. Uh, somebody needs to figure out, you know, how to make a sealed container that keeps the sand dry and flowing mm -hmm. smoothly and and you know and all that sort of thing um but they were the state of the art in timekeeping for for a few hundred years um that that was you know sort of the the most reliable um method of, of keeping track of time and you know early mechanical clocks on ships they would set using sand glasses so mm -hmm. um you know that that was sort of the state of the art for for quite a while Right, and you also mentioned mechanical clocks there. So how are they built exactly? What is it there that executes repeated motions and allows for us to reliably, or at least for our everyday activities, of course, in a good enough way, keep track of time? Yeah, so the earliest form of, of mechanical clock uh, is a thing called a virgin foliate. And so it's a it's a bar that sort of twists back and forth 
and uh, it takes you know some amount of time to to you know complete one oscillation of that, and that's what you're counting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way you both keep track of the count and keep it in motion is with a gear that's being driven by some force. So, you know, you the the traditional form of this is you you know you have a big tall tower and you have a heavy weight that's falling slowly, and you know the 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 cord on the weight is wrapped around the shaft of this gear. You know, the gear is trying to turn, so it pushes uh, a pallet that sets this foliate uh, rotating. And then it, it turns a bit, and then um, there's a, a pallet that interferes with the gear and stops it, mm-hmm. um, which stops the twisting and then pushes it back in the other way, so it twists back. Then it stops it on the other side, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. Um, that makes uh, a very regular motion. It, it has a couple of problems in terms of the accuracy, uh, one of which is it depends very much on the shape of the, the thing that's twisting back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also depends on the driving force. So uh, the, there's a historical example of this, uh, dates to the 1300s in, in England and Salisbury, where you know, they've reconstructed this, this uh, virgin foliate clock. And if you um, wrap the rope around the, the shaft, you know, that, that connects to the, the weight, if you wrap the, that rope around the shaft in a single layer, it ticks at one rate. And if you add a second layer of coils around it, it ticks slightly faster because you get more torque from having the effectively larger radius. So how hard you're pushing on the thing that's twisting changes the rate at which it ticks. So those clocks were never uh, super, super accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they were, in fact, they tended not to have minute hands, right? Ooh. So they, they tended to be, you know, if you set up a clock face with one of those, it just had like an hour indicator mm-hmm. because it wasn't, wasn't very good, uh, for timescales shorter than that. Mm-hmm. And when exactly did, uh, after, of course, the development of the first mechanical clocks, when exactly did people start creating clocks that individuals could carry in themselves like for example uh, i'm not sure if there's a more specific name to this but pocket watches wrist watches and all of yeah that kind of it, th- those are are shockingly early uh, as, as pretty much as soon as somebody figured out how to make mechanical clocks which is hazy it's but it's it's also it's in that like 1200 1300 sort of of Uh, time range. Mm -hmm. Uh, Almost immediately, people started making them in all kinds of weird sizes and shapes. And so, you know, you have these massive tower clocks in cathedrals that run for a very long time. You also have uh, miniaturized ones, you know, pocket watches that have, you know, the little virgin foliate system in there, this thing twisting back and forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the driving force is provided by a spring. So you, you get a coil of metal, you wind it up, uh, and as it unwinds, that's what twists the shaft that keeps the, the foliate uh, going back and forth. Um, so people, you know, by the late 1300s, people are making, you know, watch-sized little clocks. They're not very good uh, as, as these things go, you know, and it depends a lot on the skill of the, the people who, who made them. Um, there's a particular guy uh, named uh, Jurst Berge, uh, who I believe is Austrian, um, but uh, who who you know in the like late 1500s, early 1600s, really raises these these clocks to a high art. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes you know so the most accurate virgin foliate clocks anybody ever made. 
but they they were really variable. Mm -hmm. So getting a little bit into the politics again, in what ways did the emergence of global empires and the need to keep track of time at high sea, for example, influence the evolution of clocks? Yeah, the the big issue uh, with like globe spanning empires is this question of longitude, right? Yeah, that, mm -hmm. that people at different east-west locations on the surface of the globe see different local times. Right. Um, and that, that, you know, makes for some, nowadays that makes for some coordination issues, right? Like you and I are in very different time zones. So uh, making sure that we get on this call at the same time is a little trickier than, than it might be if we were in the same village. But um, you can also turn that around and it becomes a problem of navigation. So knowing where you are on the earth depends on knowing what time it is and knowing the difference in what time it is where you are from what time it is someplace else. So um, that becomes a big issue because knowing your east-west position, you know, if you're building an empire that requires sailing across the Atlantic or sailing across the Pacific, you really want to know when you're on those ships, like how much farther do we have to go before we're going to hit land? You know, how much before we we get to some place where we can refill our stock of fresh water, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so that becomes a, a big issue. Keeping track of of time at sea uh, becomes a big deal. Right. And how did the development of astronomy as a scientific discipline contribute to the history of timekeeping? And also, was the development of astronomy in any way also influenced by these political and economic needs? So in the case of the, the problem of navigation, right, there's two approaches that, that people take. One is just to build a really good mechanical clock, uh, which turns out to be uh, just a formidable technical challenge and is eventually solved in the, the 1700s. Um, the other way you could do it is by doing astronomy. Mm -hmm. So you can uh, make uh, very careful observations of the position of the moon, say, relative to the background of stars. And if you can predict that position far enough in advance, you can use the position of the moon as, uh, as a clock. You can say, well, okay, the moon is passing this star, and I expect that to happen on this date at this time in London. And right. then according to my clock on my ship, uh, it is now, you know, the same date, but a different time. That means, okay, we're three hours away from London. We must be, you know, this far across the Atlantic. And so uh, that gives you um, a way of measuring longitude. Uh, and that works great on land uh, almost immediately after the invention of the telescope. By the, the mid-1600s, people have nailed uh, how to get time by looking at the moons of Jupiter through a telescope and making predictions about where they're going to be tells you the time to within minutes and you can make these these great longitude measurements and that's that's fabulous um, it's a problem if you're on a ship because the ship's pitching and rolling and you know the moons of Jupiter are just a little too hard to observe uh, if you're on the deck of a ship but the moon is is good for that it's it's big enough and obvious enough that you can cite it pretty clearly even under bad observing conditions. And um, the problem with that is it's just really hard to predict the, the position of the moon. And so you need uh, some of the greatest minds of the, their era to work on this. Isaac Newton 
um, comes up with his, his theory of gravitation mm -hmm. and uh, makes a model of the orbit of the moon, uh, you know, and, and how it should be affected by the, the gravity of the Earth and the gravity of the sun. And, the you know, the, all of these orbits are elliptical and, and puts all that together. Uh, Leonard Euler goes through and, and shows mathematically that Newton's system does, in fact, work. And that's all you need. And you can make these sort of predictions. And then there's a guy named uh, Tobias Meyer, uh, who's a, a German cartographer and astronomer who just does the grunt work. He, he makes very careful measurements of the position of the moon over a period of several years. And he grinds through a ton of math to um, find all the parameters of the orbit that you need to use Euler's version of Newton's theory to predict the, the position of the moon. And that eventually enables people to make these nautical almanacs where you can look at where the moon is and say what time it is based on using the moon as a clock. Mm -hmm. So earlier you mentioned uh, why standardized time zones were developed or created, but mm -hmm. are, they, are they really extremely accurate? I, I'm asking you this because sometimes, and I'm not sure if for a good reason or not, people question and complain about why i don't know if the, in the us that also happens between close states for example but here in europe why in portugal we have one time zone and in spain just next to us it's utc plus yeah. one so i mean are they extremely accurate or there's also sort of a political ingredient there it's it's very much a, a matter of of politics and convention it's just convenient to have you know, large geographic areas all have the same time, particularly now that we have sort of nearly instant communication between mm -hmm. uh, distant locations. Right. So, you know, if it if it takes a day on horseback to get to the next town, it doesn't really matter if your clocks are you know different by 10 minutes because of the position of the sun. You know, nobody cares. Uh, but if it's, you know, if you can, in the course of a day, get, you know, a thousand miles away, well, then there's a big difference in the position of the sun at different times. And now you've got a, a significant synchronization problem. So, you know, people decide to kind of do this on timescales that are sort of meaningful. So, you you know, we pick a band that is about one hour wide. You know, there's uh, about the, the difference in longitude that the, is covered by one hour of time difference. So we just say everybody in roughly this band is it's going to be the same time. Mm -hmm. But that does lead to, you know, so in the U.S., it's sort of, you know, eastern Maine is kind of the farthest east that you, you get uh, in the mainland U.S. And that time we're pretending that the, the time of day there is the same as the time of day in sort of western Indiana, mm -hmm. um, which is quite a, a distance in longitude. It's about an hour difference, you know, in the position of the sun. And that leads to some complaining, right? You have people in Indiana who are like, why are we changing time? You know, like, well, why aren't we on the same time as Illinois, the next state over? Um, but, you know, there's just got to be a boundary somewhere. Um, or else you have to have a system where, you know, everybody says it's everybody just works on UTC. But then, you know, uh, you go to work at a different hour in mm. Spain than in Portugal. And there's going to be right. a boundary somewhere where people are, you know, just a few miles apart and behaving and, you know, tracking time in a different way. And it's just going to be the way it is. Mm -hmm. So for the last part of the interview, I would like to ask you some questions that are more within the realm of 
physics itself. So in what ways does the physical nature of time differ from our human understanding of it? So the the interesting thing is you as you start thinking deeply about these issues of of coordinating clocks over long distances. So you know, I want to have a clock in Europe and a clock in the United States and I want them to be synchronized with one another. Um, you have to account for some fundamental things. You have to account for the fact that the light that's going to carry a signal back and forth between you uh, travels at a finite speed. And if you don't account for that travel time, you get the difference in uh, longitude wrong or the clocks are, are improperly synchronized. So um, that's a, a thing that, that people worked out uh, how to do in the 1800s. But if you think carefully about that process, it only works if everybody's standing still relative to one another. And it turns out if somebody's moving and watching you do this clock synchronization process, right. as they move past, they're going to say that you did that process improperly because they're going to see the same speed of light, the signal going um, back and forth, but they're going to see it as, you know, when they're when the light's going in the direction that they're moving in, it's going to take a little longer. When the light's going in the opposite direction, it's going to take a little less time. They see a different time and they see your clocks improperly synchronized. Um, and it turns out thinking about that difference is a way into the theory of relativity uh, mm -hmm. that tells you that um, that's a real thing, that, that people who are moving relative to one another uh, will not agree that their clocks are properly synchronized. And in fact, they'll see the other person's clock ticking more slowly than theirs, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a, an absolute fact about the universe that we can verify experimentally in a bunch of different ways. Uh, and that has really deep consequences for the nature of time. Um, it also ends up mixing together time and space. So, uh, you know, you see this difference in times, you also see a contraction in length. So people who are moving relative to another will measure a different separation between objects uh, in ways that are also, you know, it's absolutely predictable. It's it's 100% verifiable. Um, and that's uh, a, a very real thing. And, and there's sort of a trade-off between these, right? You see less time passing. You also see less uh, of a distance in space. And these things balance each other out. And so you can work this out and show that uh, time is intimately connected to motion and then that it's also connected to position because of the effects of gravity. And so gravity also mixes, changes this mix of what is space and what is time at different locations. And that has a really profound reshaping of, of our understanding of the nature of, of space and the passage of time. Mm -hmm. And th this is the way we keep uh, track of time, is it in any way similar to, I mean, I'm not even sure if this question makes sense, but is it in any way similar to how time actually runs? So, so there's, uh, there's a whole bunch of ways to answer these kinds of questions about the, you know, the nature of time and what it's time, you know, if you, and it depends on what kind of physicist you, you, you talk to. So there are people who do sort of general relativity and cosmology and think about sort of deep time and long, you know, spans of time and think about really have to grapple with the nature of, of time as one component of a four dimensional space time. Uh, and then they'll have a different sort of answer than someone who's in the business of making clocks. 
I'm closer to the making clocks people. So my feeling is that uh, time is what you measure with a clock, right? I'm going to have some process that I say, this is my unit of time and I'm gonna count how many times this process happens and that tells me how much time has passed. Um, and then that's a very individual thing because as you move around, right, different people's clocks are ticking at different rates and, and so on. Uh, but my inclination is to say that uh, the time that you experience, uh, you know, as measured by a clock that you carry is the thing that's most meaningful. Uh, but people who do, you know, sort of general relativity, cosmology sort of things uh, will approach this somewhat differently. Right. So there's uh, one type of clock that is more recent we haven't talked about yet. What are quantum clocks and how do they work exactly? Yeah, so the modern standard of time, as I, as I said earlier, is is based on quantum mechanics. So, um, you know, when uh, an electron and an atom changes from one state to another, it absorbs or emits light. And the right. frequency of the light that it absorbs or emits depends on the energy difference between those the, the states. So uh, we have chosen a particular pair of states to be our, our basis of time. Uh, it's two states in the cesium atom. And uh, those two states are separated by light that, that by definition has a frequency of, of 9,192,631,770 hertz. Um, full stop, right? You know, decimal point, infinite number of zeros. It's defined to be exactly that. And then the clock that we use is a microwave source in the laboratory that's tuned to exactly that frequency. Uh, and we use the atoms, so the atoms in an atomic clock are there as a reference. And so we, we are basically shining these microwaves on the atoms and saying, is this exactly the right frequency that you want to absorb, yes or no? Which we measure by, did they change state or not? And um, that, you know, the answer to that then lets us adjust the frequency of the microwaves to, you know, more perfectly match the the frequency that the atoms want to see. Um, the nice thing about this is there aren't any physical moving parts, right? The the microwaves are oscillating electromagnetic field. Uh, you can pick that up. The atoms, every cesium atom in the the universe is identical to every other cesium atom in the universe. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you're not dependent on you know who made your clock in the same way uh, that that these atoms are perfect little references and the ticking of the microwaves is a per perfect uh, clock in some sense and so that's the basis for for timekeeping. We have this incredibly fast oscillation, and it turns out to be you know convenient to uh, work with electronically, so we can measure those microwaves and sort of divide that frequency down to get something that ticks once per second uh, in a fairly easy way. So what are some of the main applications of this type of clocks? I mean, what activities in modern industrialized and post-industrial societies we wouldn't be able to perform as accurately without the use of these clocks? Yeah, the the killer app for uh, atomic clocks is is the global positioning system. So mm -hmm. if you uh, ever make use of like you know Google Maps or Apple Maps or you know whatever whatever sort of smartphone you have that you you navigate with, or if you're you know someone who plays like these dopey little augmented reality <laughs> games, like there's there's Pokemon Go on my phone, um, <laughs> that that depend on knowing your position. That's based on atomic clocks. So the, the global positioning system is a network of satellites orbiting the Earth. And uh, those satellites have extremely well-defined orbits. And they 
each satellite contains a clock and just broadcasts right. its time. It sends out a coded signal saying, mm -hmm. I'm this satellite and it is this time. And your the receiver on your phone picks that up. And because we know how long, you know, we know what the speed of light is, if you know uh, how long it took the signal from the satellite to get to your phone, then you know how far away you are from that satellite. And you can get uh, pick up the signals from four different satellites, compare them to each other, and work out all of those delays. Work mm -hmm. out, okay, so this one is delayed by this many nanoseconds, this one's delayed by this many nanoseconds, and then determine all those distances to within a few meters. And then that fixes your position on the surface of the Earth. Right, so you're you're then um, you're you're sitting at the point that is the intersection of you know four spheres uh, centered on these particular satellites, and that mm -hmm. in, they intersect at only one place on the surface of the Earth. Right. So, so that to do that, right, you, to be useful, you want to be able to know your position to within you know kind of you know, for, for navigation, you want to know it's kind of, you know, the width of a road, right? So, you know, maybe, you know, three meters or something like that. Uh, that requires time, timekeeping that's good to nanosecond precision. Um, the one and only area where American units are superior to uh, the metric system is uh, the distance that light travels in a nanosecond is almost exactly one foot. Uh, so, you know, 12 inches, one foot is the distance that light travels in a nanosecond. So for every every nanosecond of error in your, your timing, yeah, it's a, that's a foot of position. Error. So it's about three nanoseconds to the meter. Um, and so you need your clocks to be that good. And the only clocks that are that good are these atomic clocks. And so we've we've got them in, in satellites. The you know, the global positioning system is the the big one. Um, that's that's an American system that, that was uh, originally put up by the U.S. military, and now it's um, it's maintained by the, the the U.S. military, but it's open to civilian use. There's a Russian equivalent uh, network of satellites. The Chinese have started putting their own uh, together. There are these different, but they all have the same basic principle: mm -hmm. atomic clocks and satellites determine the distance from you to the to several satellites. That fixes your position on the surface of the Earth. Right. So I have one last question then. Do you have any idea or is it possible to predict what kinds of clocks, calendars and other potential timekeeping technologies would be developed in the future? So th there's a lot of work going on now, right? We have these, these cesium atomic clocks are good to uh, a level where if you have two of them and you ran them continuously, um, they would need to run continuously for something close to a billion years before they would drift apart by one second, right? So they're incredibly good. And most people say, well, why do you need anything better than that? Uh, but people are in fact working on clocks that are, that are much, much better than that. Um, so one reason is you could do GPS better, right? Uh, you can make better atomic clocks. Uh, you could you know, measure your position on the earth to centimeters. And then you think about, you know, autonomously moving robots and, and that kind of thing. Um, you can also just use it to, to measure positions and, and measure things incredibly accurately. Um, if you have clocks that are kind of a thousand times better than that, you can also do some really interesting things with exotic physics. And so, uh, you know, I mentioned briefly that, that gravity affects 
the rate at which clock ticks. So something like a gravitational wave passing by causes this, this very uh, minute stretching and compression of space-time as it goes by. That also causes you know, a speeding up and slowing down of a clock as that gravitational wave passes. So if you had a network of phenomenally accurate atomic clocks, you could see a passing gravitational wave as sort of a ripple in the, the time signals from these clocks passing through the network. Um, and so people have proposed doing this, uh, putting uh, next generation atomic clocks that are a thousand times better than the, the, the cesium standards. If you put those on satellites and you put a whole bunch of them out in orbit, you could use that to track gravitational waves and tell you something about the fundamental physics of, of the universe and this very exotic uh, kind of physics. The principle for those kind of clocks is, is it still essentially the same as, as uh, cesium atomic clocks. You have two mm -hmm. uh, energy levels in an atom. You're driving an electron from one to the other, and it absorbs or emits a particular frequency of light, depending on which mm -hmm. two levels you've chosen. You're just choosing a different set of levels. You're choosing levels that are separated by frequencies that are thousands of times bigger than the microwave frequency for cesium. And so they're, you know, uh, visible light or even ultraviolet light um, in the uh, in the, the transition. So you're using lasers and, and stuff. But we have these uh, these just astonishingly good techniques for measuring these clocks. And they're good to, um, you know, position uh, They're They're good to um, levels of precision that are, you know, 10 or 100 times greater than the best cesium clocks right now. Uh, and people just keep pushing this forward because you can do these exotic physics things with them. Right. So the book is, again, a brief history of timekeeping, the science yep. of marking time from Stone Age to atomic clocks. I will yep. be this, leaving a link. This is the, that's the U.S. version. There's also, there's a different cover for the, the U.K. Yeah. Uh, and I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of this interview. Dr. Orzel, just before we go, apart from the book, would you like to mention where people can find you and your work on the internet? Uh, on the internet, um, I have a uh, blog on Substack, uh, blog, uh, newsletter, whatever you want to call those. Uh, and uh, I'm on Twitter as long as that lasts and Facebook. Um, and uh, if you just search my name, uh, I'm the only notable uh, Chad Orzel in the world. So uh, if you search it, you find me pretty pretty quickly. Great. So I will also be leaving some links to that in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. And uh, your book is really fascinating. So I recommend so. it to everyone. We will be watching and listening to this interview. All right. Thanks very much. This is This is fun to do. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klingby, Matthew Whittingberg, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Ian Riccalania, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, 
o Owen, Gardner Beck, Newberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zuc, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Espinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernadini, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrin, Kuala Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Aslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Oira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dejda Araújo, Romain Roach, Dermitri Gregoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, John Linares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Gage, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford, Sunny Smith and John Wisman. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Luis Caetano, Tom Wagner, Dan Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas Francis, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.